looking at who that baby is. Why do we celebrate? Why do we get so excited with gifts and and decorations? And why is it a time of special songs and special celebrations? Because of who he is. It's because who was born. Last week, we began that sermon series looking at what Paul says is the truth that Jesus was the second Adam. He was the new beginning of everything. That just as Adam introduced, <laughs> I was fine until I saw Russell laughing. I, and we, <laughs> just as Adam introduced creation and was a representative for so too Jesus enters the world and is a new Adam, and through him we have the hope and the promise and the expectation that there will be a new creation one day that is perfect, and we look forward to that. So we celebrate Christmas for that reason, but we also celebrate Christmas because he is the promised king. And so this morning we turn our attention to that truth. So hopefully by now you found Matthew chapter 21. If you would please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. Matthew records this. He says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two, two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill that which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and Father, we are thankful. We are thankful for gathering us here, thankful that you have loved us, thankful that you have watched over us and cared for us, thankful that we can come into this place and celebrate the truth of who you are, to celebrate that the King has been born, to celebrate that our Savior has arrived, to celebrate the hope that you give. Father, I pray this morning that you would use your word to change our lives that we would go from this place with enthusiasm, with joy, with purpose to proclaim your name and in our community and around the world. Father, we ask all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. When we see 
when we see in Matthew this triumphal entry, this is typically a passage that we would see during Palm Sunday, that Sunday right before Easter, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem with much fanfare. And it's an exciting thing. It's one of the few times that we see in Scripture where Jesus allows for others to celebrate him as a king. And part of the reason that in the rest of the Gospels he kind of tamps down on that is because many during this time period would have seen the kingship as something different than what Jesus intended to do. They wanted Jesus to be a political king. They wanted Jesus to have an earthly kingdom. They wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome. And Jesus continually was having to explain to others and to his disciples that that's not why he had come. That he had come for a much grander purpose. To establish something that would not just be temporary, but something that would be eternal. And yet here... In Matthew 21, we have Jesus very deliberately doing things so that he would be celebrated. And in part, this was due so that he would fulfill Scripture. The passage, the the verse that you have quoted there in the middle of the passage that we read this morning in in chapter 21 is from Zechariah 9.9. And so Jesus is... Allowing Jesus' desires for this moment of celebrating him as king so that he may fulfill the word of God, so that he may be obedient to the Father. And so there's this celebration, and what a celebration it is. The crowds gather together and they are taking off their clothes, their coats that they would have had over, and they would they were laying them on the ground and they were cutting down tree branches and waving them and laying those on the ground and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means to save. Why were they celebrating? They were celebrating because the king had come. They were recognizing in this moment that Jesus was not just anyone, that he was unique. He was what they had been waiting on. And so they began, their, their exuberance is overwhelming. We see in one of the other gospels that one of the teachers of the day came to Jesus and said, you need to quiet the crowd down. They, they are getting too right. They think that you're the promised one. They think that you're the, the king that has been waited on, the Messiah. Jesus' response is what? He says, if they didn't cry out, the rocks would. Jesus says, I'm not going to tamp down on anything. I am who they say I am. I do, this, is, this worship is right because I am the king that has been promised. Of course, when he gets to the city, there's this great question in verse 10. They say, who is this? Who is this individual whom the crowds are praising? Who is this that they're crying, Hosanna? Who is this that it's like a king entering the city? Who is it? And their response is simply, Jesus. Now, they don't get it entirely right. They say it's Jesus, prophet, the prophet. And while he certainly was a form of a prophet, he is much, much more than that, we know. He is God himself, wrapped in the flesh, come to save his people. This king, his name is Jesus. But I want to back up a little bit. Have you ever watched one of those, watched a movie or a television show and they start the movie or that television show 
with kind of the apex, the exciting point, right? They're either defusing a bomb or they're in a high-speed chase or there's something dramatic going on and you're kind of thrown into the midst of all the action and you get caught up in it and just about the time that it's going to get resolved, just about the time that there's a climax, all of a sudden the screen goes black and it opens with a very tranquil scene. Like you've seen shows like that and then it says one day earlier or it says 24 hours or, or you know, two days or a week earlier. That's what I want to do. We open with the, the entrance into Jerusalem with all of its spectacle and all of its excitement and all of everything of a king coming into the city. And then I want to take a pause and say, let's go back to earlier. Let's explain why this is so exciting in the moment. But we're not going to go back just one day. We're not going to go back just one year. We're going to go back several thousand years to Genesis, this promise that is being fulfilled in this moment and all of the excitement that comes starts back in Genesis. We are going to go through a lot of scripture this morning. You are welcome to try to keep up um, or you can simply write these down, but we're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis chapter 17, we are with a man named Abraham. A man named Abraham. Now, Abraham's story is interesting. God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to gather up everything you own. I want you to gather up your entire family. And I want you to follow me to a place that I will lead you. I'm not going to tell you where just yet, but you follow me and, and I will show you where you're going to live. Can you imagine that moment? Like a still small voice comes to you and you have to go to your wife and say, by the way, honey, we need to pack up everything. And she says, where are we going? And you say, well, I don't really know just yet. I'm not, I'm not really sure, but God's going to show us where. We're just supposed to start driving west and we'll stop when he points the way. I don't know about you, you gentlemen, but my wife would probably have more questions than just, okay, let's go. But that's what happens. Abraham gathers everything up. They begin to head west. God actually shows them the place that they're going to settle. And then God begins to unveil a little bit more of the plan. And in chapter 17, we have a piece of that. Chapter 17, verse 6, it says this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. This is God speaking to Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Did you notice there in verse 6, he says not just that he would make Abraham into nations, but that he would give from him, his offspring would be kings. Now this is interesting because when God makes this promise to Abraham, he has but one son. And that son is not the son of him and his wife. It's from another lady named Hagar. And God is telling, in chapter 17, God is telling Abraham, who is almost 100 at this point, no, you're going to have another child. And through him, there are going to be nations and kings. And at one point, Abraham and Sarah both kind of get a laugh out of this. They're like, how? they don't understand how this can happen. They're not, they weren't planning on having any more children at 190. But here we are. Not only are they going to have a child, but 
through that child, there's going to be nations and kings. And so we see the beginning of this promise here in Abraham. God identifying that there, there is something important about Abraham's family tree. And so Abraham does, and Sarah do have a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac, in turn, has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and Jacob's name in a series and an event that we won't go into very long this morning, but in an event, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And we see the continuation of the promise at the end of Genesis. Jacob, now named Israel, has gathered together the 12 sons that he has, and he is blessing them and prophesying over them. And so we come to that Chapter 49 of Genesis, and we see him speaking to one of his sons, Judah. In verse 8 of chapter 49, it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah, the lion's cub, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the tribute comes to him, and to him shall be obedience of the peoples. So he continues on here in Genesis, and Judah is talking, and he speaks to Judah, one of his sons, and he proclaims over Judah that he will be a king not that he specifically will be a king, sorry, but that his offspring will be kings, that there will be a line of kings that come from his children and after. Now this is, again, this is an interesting prophecy because at this point, at this point, there is no nation of Israel. It's Jacob and his 12 boys and their families and that's it. So the idea that there would be kings is something that seems foreign, it seems something way, way far away seems remarkable. Not only that, but in this day and age that this is written, it would have been the expectation that if there was going to be a leader of the family, much less a leader of a nation, that it would have been the firstborn. And Judah is not the firstborn. Reuben is. So it's, it's odd, it's a little strange that Jacob would be prophesying, blessing Judah in such a way to proclaim that the kings would be coming from him. And so we get a little bit narrower, right? We start with Abraham, that there's going to be kings from him. Now we're narrowing that down, that it's going to be from the line of Judah. But there's a long time between Judah and when Israel has kings. But I want you to see something else interesting. Turn over, if you're following with me, to Deuteronomy chapter 17. By the time we get to Deuteronomy, Israel, the, those 12 boys have had a lot of kids. And they are now a full-fledged nation. They have been enslaved in Egypt for many years. God has sent a man named Moses into Egypt to, to use him so that he might, God might rescue his people from that slavery. They come out. They go to the desert to a place called Mount Sinai. And there God meets his people and he gives them the law. The law was simply a set of statutes designed to help Israel understand how they were to live and have relationship with the God who loved them. 
with the God of all the universe. And tucked away in the law is this passage concerning kings. It says, when you come into the land that the Lord is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you will never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, and it will be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that it may not be lifted up above his brothers, not turn aside from the commandment either the long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So we see the promise begin in Genesis, start with Abraham, continue on to Jacob, and then we see God do something interesting. In the law, long before they had, they had kings, long before they had been really organized even as a nation, God tucks away the expectation for kings. He tucks away the expectations for the kings. He says, when you desire to have kings, I'm going to allow that to happen. But there is a set of, of guidelines that they should go by. First, they should be one of you. You should have one that you shall be represented by one of your own. He says, second, they need to trust in me and not in things of this world. At this time, horses and chariots represented the the technology of the day. That was the leading edge of warfare was chariots and horses. And so when he says, don't gather a lot of horses, don't put together a huge stable, what he means by that is, I don't want you to trust in what other people do. I want you to trust in me. And he's basically saying the same thing with silver and gold. Don't gather a lot of silver and gold for yourself. The king shouldn't be all about wealth because that's not where you're going to find your security. You're going to find your security in me. He says, don't gather many wives for yourself. It's only going to lead to trouble. He says that the king is to be a spiritual leader as well. He says that the king is to have a copy of the law, a copy of God's word next to him at all times that he may follow it well. With the inference being that if the king is following the law well, if the king is obeying God, that the people will follow. And so we have this set of expectations tucked away here in the law. But the promise goes on. The, the, the details go on. We see next that the king is not only going to be from Abraham, that it's not only going to be from the tribe of Judah, but it's going to be that the king will come from the line of David. Turn with me, or if you're following along, 2 Samuel chapter 7. David, from the tribe of Judah, has been named king. God calls David a man after his own heart. And David, for the most part, serves well. He's not perfect, but he serves well. And he's desiring to serve even better. He's desiring to, serve, to build a temple, a house for God. And God says, no, that's not going to be your job. I'm going to give that to your son. But he gives him another promise. 
In 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 12 here. He says this, God is speaking through Nathan to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise your offspring after you, he shall come, he, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we have this next prophecy where, they, where God is telling David, look, your, your rule, your kingdom it's going to continue on. It's not going to be like your predecessor whom I took the kingdom away and I gave it to somebody else. Your offspring are going to rule forever. Now immediately that means Solomon, David's son, who would come and who would build the temple. And then there would be others after him that came from the same lineage. But this points to something much bigger. It points to a grander plan. And we see that etched out even a little bit more in the prophets. Now, so the prophets looking at all of the divine prophecies over kingship, but I want to take us to one that is maybe most familiar and certainly is one that we see read at Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. It says, For us to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah and the other prophets say that yes, it's Abraham to Jacob to David and there will be a king to come and he is going to be magnificent. He is going to be the prince of peace. He's going to be all these things. But notice that there's something interesting in the names that Isaiah gives. One of them is mighty God. This king would not be like the rest. He would be different. He would not simply be a man. He would be God himself. And so we see all of these promises. We see all of these things coming together. But the problem for Israel was they didn't know the when. They didn't know the when. Prophecy is, is interesting in that God gives his writers, he gives his people an insight into the future. But oftentimes they have dual meaning. You saw in the prophecy that's given to David that he talks about his offspring. And part of that prophecy is for Solomon, but the other part of that prophecy is for the king to come. And as you read through all of the books of the prophets, you're going to see this as well. These prophecies often have dual meaning. And it's hard for the, the writer, the author, to know the distance in between. It's kind of like this painting. When we think about biblical prophecy, it's kind of like this painting. We see the trees in the foreground, and the trees appear close. But then we see a successive series of mountains behind it. Now, how far is it from the trees to the first mountain? Well, we can't tell, right? And how far is it from the first mountain 
to the second one. Well, it's difficult to tell that as well, and so on and so forth. And prophecy in Scripture is much the same way in that we can see it written, but it is near impossible to know the timing and how it plays out. We know it's going to happen. We know it's coming. But it is hard for us to know the when. And so Israel, the nation of Israel, as they hear the prophecies, they know that Abraham's going to produce kings. They know that Jacob or Judah is going to produce kings. They know that the line of David is going to produce a king who is going to reign forever. They know this is all going to happen, but they are forced to wait because they don't know the when. And wait they do. Hundreds of years. And during that waiting, they figure something out. They figure out that this king that's coming, he's going to have to be different. Because what they find out is that human kings just aren't going to cut it. What we see in the Old Testament, even in the midst of all of these prophecies, is the failure of Israel's kings. We're not going to spend a a ton of time here, but as you go through 1st and 2nd Samuel and then 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you see Israel's kings fail. They fail in leadership. They are meant to protect. They are meant to judge. They are meant to be righteous. They are meant to watch over the people. But what we see time and time again is that they fail in this respect. They do not take care of the people. They do not bring peace. They do not judge rightly. Isaiah in chapter 1, you can go back and read that later, but in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah paints, paints a very grim picture of leadership indeed. He says they are prone to bribery. They are men who don't seek justice, but rather in pockets and to satisfy their friends. There's a failure of leadership. There's a failure in worship. These men that we see in Deuteronomy, the expectation that they would be men of God's word who obeyed him and yet and to worship him and him alone. And yet what we see in the kings of Israel to follow is that they do none of that. They don't follow him. They don't worship him. Even Solomon, the son of David, fails in this area. He marries a ton of wives, women who do not believe in God, and over time he is eventually follows them, and in doing so, he brings with him the nation as they begin to worship idols as well. A failure in obedience. Even in David, we see him fail. Even in David, we see him commit adultery, murder. We see him abuse his power at different times. And that's just the beginning. You read through the first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, and you are going to see time after time after time a failure of obedience in Israel's king, which just begins to even more build anticipation. How much we can we understand this. You watch the news. Watch the news and you see things happening that we ten years ago, maybe even five years ago, would have never dreamed would be happening. We see a failure in our leadership. We see failure in the world around us. And as Christians, we long for something different. We long for something better.
better. And so Israel too, as they hear the promises of things to come, they know how it should be. They long for something better. They long for the promised king. Which takes us back to Matthew 21. And we understand why when as Jesus begins to ride in on this colt of a donkey, the crowds that went before him and followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They are excited because finally it appears that there is one who is going to fulfill the promises and the expectations of the king. And they can't help but to rejoice. They can't help but to be excited. And Jesus, in his words and his actions, proves to be the perfect king. Perfect in wisdom and in power. As he guides his disciples. As he protects them. Perfect in his obedience. Never once strain from the word of God, never straying from the purpose of his father throughout his life, even to the point of dying on a cross for us. This perfect king who is a humble servant. When we think of king, we do not often think of the word humble, and we certainly don't think of the word servant. But that is exactly what Jesus models before us. Though he is the creator of all things, though he is the ruler of all things, what we see in Christ is the heart of a servant. One who cares for those that are sick and heals them. One who has empathy for and sympathy for the grieving and raises the dead to life. One who desires relationship with his people. One who washes the disciples' feet. A king who loves his people so much that he is willing to die for them. To suffer for them. He is the perfect king. And in that, he is the righteous judge. Because he is perfect, he is able to sit before all the world and to rightly judge. We look at the world around us and we see justice perverted all the time. We have, we have a justice system that we would put up against most in this world. And yet even our justice system we would look at and say there are times of failure. But there is one judge, there is one perfect king that sits on the throne of heaven and one day will judge all people and his justice is perfect. He does not miss anything. He, nothing is unknown to him. And he is able to look at the heart of an individual and to know. He is the perfect king. In all ways. And because of that, we rejoice. Because of that, we can be excited that we don't serve just a tainted leader, that we don't serve someone that is imperfect, that we don't follow someone who is going to get us in more trouble than when we started. Ultimately, we as believers serve the perfect king. So when he tells us, this is my desire for you, we can trust his commands and follow him wherever he may lead. When he can say, I have gone to prepare a place for you, we can rejoice because we know it is true. And certainly, that is what he tells his disciples. 
the end of the reason that we celebrate is not just because the king has come, but because we know the king will return. Jesus tells his disciples, I am leaving, but I am going to prepare a place for you, and I will come back for you. Last passage that we're going to look at this morning, turning to Revelation. Jesus dies on the cross, he raises three days later, and then he ascends back to heaven. But he does not do so without promise. Revelation chapter 19, we see the return of the king. John says this, he says, Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and, by, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jumping to chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, in which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by, the, by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found in the written, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The king will come again. And while he came in a humble manger the first time around, while he came the first time to only a little fanfare, this time around he will come in a way that no one can deny. He will be king of kings and lord of lords to all. His enemies will be destroyed. Those that have turned their back on him will be destroyed. And not only that, but death and even Hades will be destroyed. There will be, he will reign alone without threat from anything or anyone. His kingdom will be unending. We have seen over history, kingdoms, the, the one truth of all kingdoms is that they fail. All kingdoms fail. But the kingdom that the Lord Jesus Christ will establish will be forever and ever. First Thessalonians tells us that, though, that one day there will be a sound of a trumpet and Jesus will return and with the saints that have gone before him and we will be caught up with them and so we will remain forever. Forever with him, and his people will rejoice. One more passage. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Amen and amen. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Who is this baby that we rejoice over? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day he is coming again. And it will not be for a moment. It will be for all of eternity. And in that moment, for those that have placed their faith and trust in him, we will know life as he intended it. No more death. No more suffering, no more pain, no more goodbyes. Amen and amen. As we celebrate Christmas, we don't just look back to the king. We look forward to his return. May we do that well. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up this morning. We're just going to have a time of response to his word I pray that if you are here and you have put your faith and trust in him, that this morning, that you would be excited, that you would be enthusiastic about what he has done for you and what he has promised for you, and that you would respond to that this morning. I pray this morning that if you are here and you do not know him, that you would understand the depths of what he has done for you, that he loves you that he wants a relationship with you, that he wants these promises for you as well, promises for eternity and not for death. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises. Lord, you have kept so many for us. So many for us. Too many to count. Lord, I pray that this morning that we would reflect on who you are. And that we would rejoice in the coming of our King. And Lord, that we would wait with great anticipation for your return. Father, I pray that if there's one here this morning that, that they would acknowledge, I am doing things my own way. I am the king. I am the queen of my own life. But I know that I need something different. Father, that this morning they would come to you. They would believe in who you are. And they would desire to follow you. Desire to make you king. Father, I pray that we would rejoice in that. I pray that we would rejoice in your name and in your perfection and your glory. We pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ.